0: About a year ago, a gentleman named John Kerlin told me a group called The Naz is going to be the next number one group in America. They're from Philadelphia. They're doing a song on this album, which is fantastic. And they're one of the fan magazine's most favorite groups. Let's take a listen to them right now doing Not Wrong Long, The Naz.
1: Thank you very much, guys. Thank you very much, Todd, Kuki, and Tom. That's
2: the NAS. This is Tom Mooney from NAS and Fuse, and you are listening to Cheap Talk.
3: It's time for some cheap talk. You're listening to Trick Chat.
1: Welcome to your Cheap Talk, a podcast about cheap trick. I'm Ken Mills, one of your hosts here today, and today I'm joined by the ever effervescent BJ Cramp. Hello there, BJ. We have someone very special on the line today. Yes, we do. Please introduce. We have Mr.
4: Mr. Tom Mooney on the line. Tom Mooney. Who? He's he uh, played a role throughout the history of Cheap Trick, <laughs> if you trace the uh, the timeline. He was there for different interesting moments in the history of the band, so it should be very interesting to hear his take on, on how things went down.
1: Absolutely, and he was also a member of Naz, and I remember hearing Naz when I was a young person. My uncle loved Naz. My Uncle Gary loved Naz, so thank you, Tom.
2: Excellent. Thank you.
1: So, uh, BJ, where do you want to start?
4: Yeah, well, where do you want to start, Tom? Um, I was going to say probably you saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, right? <laughs> Is that where it started?
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I actually saw—I went to—I saw the Beatles live three times. Oh wow! Wow! I was at the, the famous Shea Stadium concert. Um, I went to JFK Stadium in Philadelphia, and I went to the Atlantic City Convention uh, Hall in Atlantic City. Wow, yeah. And so was, it was that
4: what inspired you to 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 you know pursue a life of playing in bands,
2: the Beatles, like most people? I, you know, I don't know. I I started late. Um, uh, I was at, I, when I was in the, uh, just public schools. Uh, they still had pretty big music programs then. Mm in the 60s and so they bounced me through every section of the orchestra and i think the trumpet player the the you know the trumpet players or teachers to sent me to the to the woodwinds and the woodwinds sent me to the piano and the piano sent me somewhere else and finally they just dropped me <laughs> but uh uh my mother helped me get a little drum kit I was probably 17, 18 I had no idea what to do with it um, I I arranged to have one lesson, I went into a lesson the only thing I could think of in my mind was I wanted to play Hang On Sloopy and uh, I went into this lesson and the guy had me um, learning rudiments and doing march music, just one one lesson and I, I just left and never went back and I sort of sat on the drums. I think I got a gig. I must have been 17 doing a polka party. Mm. This is in Western <laughs> Pennsylvania at a, at a textile mill. Um, and then I didn't really uh, do anything. Uh, I was in college and a guy came knocking on the door and said, Hey, we heard you had a drum kit. We need a guy in our band. And, uh, yeah. That's how I got started. I joined a band called the Inmates. I left college for one semester. We we went off on the road. We were in uh, Jacksonville, North Carolina playing. uh, That's where Camp Lejeune is, the East Coast Marine uh, boot camp. And uh, lived in a trailer, played in this bar, watching Marines beat the crap out of each other every night. And that was my, and then I went back to school, and uh, didn't 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 play much. I was really into academics, and I played basketball for two years at Penn State, and uh, yeah, that's how I got started.
1: So how'd you wind up in NAS?
2: When I was in college, I started. I kept starting bands. You know, we I was living in a dormitory complex, and it was it was brand new. It was they were four ten story buildings, and then all linked together underground with common rooms and cafeterias and music rooms and stuff. So a bunch of guys at, at school got together, anybody who had an instrument. And we uh, just started put, putting on little, little gigs, um, just like young kids do. Then I got involved with a couple of guys who were in a folk rock band from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Mm. And uh so I went off to Bethlehem on a few weekends, and we played some. They were. I, I, it's hard to. It's hard to uh, uh, remember that those were all kind of teen clubs. Uh-huh. So yeah. So we'd play those. Then we started taking um, uh, little gigs in Philadelphia, and I mean I can remember hitchhiking from. uh State College, Pennsylvania, to Philadelphia. It's about two hundred and some miles, with a with a floor tom, you know, a little a little bag of clothes and a floor tom. Somebody else would take a kick drum. Somebody else would take a snare. <laughs> we were all on our own. We just had to show up on time for the gig. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I was down on one of those, and uh, I was just sleeping on somebody's floor, and it was just a weekend, and I it was. Brutal, brutal weather, and I, the club I was playing at was called the Artists Hut. It was one of those little basement clubs, and I, I didn't have anywhere anything to do or anywhere to go, so I went there in the afternoon and just just was banging on drums. And uh, this uh, I th- I thought it was the only one there, and then this guy comes out of the back room with all with a big surplus army surplus overcoat and I thought, oh, my God, some derelict that comes in here and cleans the place for, for dinner or something. <laughs> and he came over and said, you mind if I pull out my guitar and play along with you? And so he pulled out his guitar, and we, we spent the whole afternoon just playing two-piece, and it was, it was
1: Todd.
2: Wow. Um, and by the end of the day, we decided to have a band together. Uh he introduced me to Carson, the bass player mm-hmm. from NAS. and we were going to be a three piece band but um when we started actually trying to put stuff together, we realized that the the musical load was too heavy, so nobody could really sing lead so while I was I was going down there on weekends and then going back to school mm-hmm. and uh I came. So they they said well we'll start looking for a singer so I came back down a couple of weeks later and they said I think they said they th- thought they'd found someone and that was stooky So at that point we were we were a whole package. We we were all living well three of us were living in Carson's little basement apartment had one of those tin shower boxes it was all <laughs> dark and gloomy and um, we used to just walk around town. Uh, we played some gigs and and we were the only people around doing that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And we had we worked really hard and had really elaborate harmonies. And and then people started coming up to us and saying, "Oh, you need a manager. You need an agent." And we said, "No, we need some money." <laughs> <laughs> so the first people that came and offered us uh, uh, ten thousand dollars, we just took it. We went out and spent nine thousand some dollars on equipment right away. And uh the rest we bought matching suits. Those kind of dark blue I'm I have color vision problems, but they're dark blue with red stripes. Mm. And uh, yeah. And the same people got us um a house with nothing in it or a, t- a row house over by South Street. And we all moved in and just started it was just all the two guys that took on that we um, uh, made a management agreement with they they ran a huge record store in downtown Philly and uh, there was an upstairs that was just filled with stuff you know just the kind of stuff that accumulates over 20 or 30 years So we went, it was a huge, big room. We went up there and cleared all the space that we could, we could and just set up and we'd be up there playing music, either all of us together or any combination of four, pretty much eight, ten hours a day. That's all we had to do. We had no money. They gave us a place to live, a dollar a day to feed ourselves with. And care packages from both of their wives would come, they'd bring it in. <laughs> and we'd fight over it. And then um, any money that we could make to engage was ours. That's, wow. how, it, that's how it started.
4: Well, so, I mean, eventually, Naz gets a record deal, and... Did you have, like, a regional hit with, what is it, Open, Open My Eyes? Is that the song?
2: Um, we, um, yeah. Uh, uh, let me see. The first thing that, one of the things that um, the two managers did that <clears throat> was enticing to us was they they promoted local concerts at a really incredibly beautiful small venue called uh, Philadelphia Town Hall, mm-hmm. and uh, they promised us gigs there. So uh, I was still in sc- I was still still in school, and uh, they booked us for a gig with the Doors on June something nineteen sixty seven and uh, I remember we were cramming to get enough stuff that felt good and i we had to I had to rush back from school to get there in time to do it. I actually got friends to take finals for me because I couldn't be there. Some of the classes were four or five hundred people, so it was easy just if it was a just a survey class or something it was easy to slip somebody in so we were just we did that show. the doors got five hundred dollars we got three. I remember that really clearly. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And they came down in a van from New York, where they were playing a club, and they used our gear and so that that was pretty just for those local scenes that was pretty pretty good launching pad so we we hung around uh new york i mean philly for a few more months, and then they went to see the who one night at um Civic arena or something they were opening up for the Mamas and Papas, uh-huh. I think, um, and uh, yeah, it was very bizarre, very <laughs> bizarre comedy. So afterwards, we were all sitting around. And I we we knew where they were staying, so uh, Todd and I were saying, "Come on, let's go, let's go, let's go to the hotel, see if we can get into the party." Now we were 19, so getting into a bar was kind of tough. But we went to the they were staying at they were all staying at the Holiday, and we went there. Just Todd and I. Stukey and Carson didn't want to go. I found myself sitting at the bar between Roger Daltrey and Keith Moon, just asking them questions. Uh, and yeah, and then Keith just wandered off, and Roger sat there for a while, and he said, "Well, I have a couple of young girls up in my room. I got to go talk to." And, and he left, and then this guy came over and sat down next to me. He said, "Who are you?" And I said, no, I, "I just, I'm just a, some guy who's amazed he got into this bar." And so he started talking, and then uh, he said, who's your friend over there? I saw both of you guys, and I said, oh, that's Todd. Then Todd came over, and he introduced himself. And he was there with a, and this was a guy named John Curland. He was there with his, uh, assist. he was the um, publicist for the Mamas and Papas, but he was trying to get into management. He was, like, trying to, I don't know, everybody seems to have been trying to mimic some other famous person's lifestyle, but John was sort of trying to be a, a uh, Brian Epstein or something. Very flamboyant. Um, and so he said, well, when can I see your band? And we just happened to be playing a an outdoor gig the next afternoon in a park. And so I told him that he came down. He and his assistant, Mike Friedman, came down and watched us. And then afterwards, they wanted to talk to us, and uh, they wanted us to come up to New York. And we said, well, we have to talk to our manager people about it. And they said, okay. So we had another meeting the next day, and they gave us a car. They had to rent a car. It was like a some powerful Dodge. And so they said, we're going to leave you with this car so you guys can come up to see us next week in New York. And that's what we did. Um, and then everything went really quickly from then they uh, tried, they wanted to manage us and, and it seemed like a great opportunity so we said yes and then we had to negotiate with our other managers and promise to get them paid back all of their investment and stuff so we went up to New York this was late fall of 67 and at first they put us in, we were all sleeping in John's office. He, he had this great office complex. His apartment was above it and the office was below. And there were a couple of rooms down there. So we we stayed there. Um, and everything seemed to go slow, but it really went pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. This was maybe October of 67. By, by uh, March or so we had a record deal. We hadn't done much in between. It was just mostly based on image. He, you know, he, they, he was um, he was very much into the teen stuff. So he had a lot of connections with all the teen magazines, and so we went and met Gloria Stavers, who was the editor of 16, and she taught us how to take photographs. I mean, literally, and started putting little bits of stuff in 16 about us, and the mail started pouring in. So it was easy to get a record deal. It was a Awful record deal, but it was easy to get it. We wanted to produce ourselves, so we did some demos of Hello, It's Me and Open My Eyes and submitted those to the record company, and we listed uh, John's assistant, Mike Friedman, as producer because they wouldn't have even listened to it if we said we'd produced ourselves, Mm
3: -hmm.
2: although he didn't really do anything except just escort us around. When we finished the album, they also forced us to use this... uh, Producer from Detroit, but we got our we got our favorite engineer who had moved out to Los Angeles, Chris Huston, to uh, engineer it. So we we felt safe with him because he was he was a British guy, really really great engineer. And we recorded the whole album. And when it came time to put it together, the versions of Open My Eyes and Hello It's Me that we had done in New York were better. Than the ones we recorded in L.A. with um, with Bill Trout, the producer. Oh. So we just fought. That was one of our first battles. We fought to have those on the record instead of his versions. And you know, everybody gets into fighting about pay at that thing. Like the song that's going to be the single, the producer of the album wasn't on it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we had to negotiate our way out of that with him. But we got those under, and they, it was released. Um, Open my eyes, A side. Hello, it's me, B side. And we had regional hits all over the country in different different areas. Like Texas, for instance, uh, Hello, it's me was number one in places like El Paso, stuff like that. All over Florida, all over New England, uh, we had close to number ones in Boston, places, a lot of places. Through the end. So yeah, back in those days, it, there was no such thing as like a worldwide release. They sort of um, released things regionally, and if it worked, then they moved out further out
1: yeah they kept expanding the range right
2: right so you could be giant I mean you could be a giant success in Florida and people out where I am now in Seattle would never have heard of you but that's that so that's what we were, we were doing and, and uh, by this point we were living in York. Like, everything was moving really really quickly at that point
4: you probably made the second album pretty quickly
2: after that right I, you know, people, yeah, because that stuff, I call it, um, whenever I read stuff about those days, I see all this stuff that's either kind of slightly distorted or just skewed in a way that shows that the people writing it didn't really comprehend the atmosphere in those days, but yeah, we, I tell people that we actually, all of our recording was actually done over a six month period, that's all. Yeah we, start, yeah, we started in the spring of 68, and uh, we finished in November, really. it was the last recording we and then through 69, we were trying to um, hold it together, but it was crumbling. So everything was really, I mean, we were hardly, you know, I played with um, lounge bands that stayed together longer than we did. <laughs> yeah.
4: Well, at some point, did, did Naz cross paths with Fuse, like on tour or something? Mm. Did you meet No, them? I can... No? Um,
2: do you want the, the story? Yeah. About of how you how met. I'm, yeah. Because oh, yeah. really had it a bit, bit wrong, but uh, I can remember it was November of 69. I think November 1st was the last gig we did. First off, as soon as we did the second album and decided not to release a double album... Todd in the, uh, just quit. He just uh, sort of said, listen, if <laughs> it's my it's my ball. I make the rules. And uh, so he just started looking for other outlets for himself. And Mike Friedman, John's assistant, was helping him to do that. He and Carson were roommates, and Stukey and I were roommates. And uh, they lived in Manhattan, and... I found a place for Stuky and I, an ad in the Village Voice that said, Swinging Bachelor Pad. (laughs) It was out in the middle of the woods in Northport, Long Island. But it was, talk about snow, Uh once got snowed in there for for two weeks. Really, it was brutal. Uh, First, Todd announced that he was leaving, but he didn't really leave because he was a little more savvy about how to promote himself. Carson never really wanted to be in the music business, uh-huh. and he yeah so he left, so I had to get go back and recruit guys from college, the, those same guys that I'd played in the dormitory with. Nobody, nobody really offered any ideas about who to get, and and we were it was just at the time when we were starting to get a lot of gigs, so we I we I had to choose whether to take time and find guys to fill those spots or just find guys to fill the spots and hope that it worked so that's what we were doing Carson left and then uh, Todd he would be available sometimes and not available other times uh, one time I just got so angry because I called him the age it got to the point where here I am a 20 year old kid and the agency's calling me to okay bookings and I'd say okay I gotta see if we have a band and I'd call Todd and he'd say, oh well I promised I'd wire my friend's stereo this weekend, so no. <laughs> I'd pull my hair out and say, okay. So anyway, we went off on the road. Then our manager, his wife died. Then he flipped out and disappeared with all of our money. So I called, um, I don't know if you ever heard of a company named Shoco in Texas. They became one of the world's biggest sound companies but at the time, they were like local managers and producers in you know, working out of Dallas, uh-huh. Jack Commies and Angus Wynn. and they were part of the part of the um, uh, owners and producers of like the famous Atlanta music festival and the Texas International Pop Festival and stuff like that. So. I called them and they sent us literally sent us money to get out of St. Louis and we drove down to Texas and got a couple of apartments and started working. They they said they'd handle our business for us until we got straightened out. So that lasted about another six months and I just I just ran out of steam. I couldn't do it anymore. So you know I had no help. I I walked in on my bass player friend doing heroin in a bathroom in one of our apartments. I said, oh God, Greg, please. And then Stukey was boasting that he could take handle more acid than anybody on earth. <laughs> we did it. We did, we headlined a gig in El Paso on I think it was November 1st, and Stukey was up at the back of this sports arena, getting high. And it was time to come down to the stage, and he started down the stairs and took a tumble and broke his ankle. Oh was so, he was so blitzed. He, we he went through the whole show. I sat there on the drums watching his foot swell out over his shoe. And when the show was over, we went to the hospital, and they set his ankle without any anesthetic or anything. He was just... Wow. He wasn't feeling a thing. So I got so <laughs> depressed. I just... It was like uh, we went back to Dallas. I went uh, next, The next night, I went to see Poco and Spirit right, uh, somewhere at some college. Uh, and I knew those guys. And so we hung out and laughed. And then the next day... I, just called the band together for a meeting and said, I, I got to go. I can't I can't do this anymore. So I, I, I was sort of had control of all the stuff. So I gave everybody whatever equipment they were using, said anybody could have a plane ticket wherever they wanted to go. After that, took all, all the cash that was left and, and divided it up and just took off. So I went back. To, I drove around the country for a couple of months, Ended up back in Pennsylvania, started a band, moved up to the top of a Ski Mountain, with a couple of Cleveland guys and a guy from my hometown. Got drafted. By now, this is like uh, late 69, early 1970. Yeah, got out of that, started this band, and I started getting letters from Screen Gems, our company, our record company. They were not really a record company, but they owned us as a record they, SGC stood for Screen Gems Columbia, which is the same people who owned Coal Gems. Mm-hmm. And initially, they they wanted us to be on Coal Gems, and we said, no, we do not want to be on the same label with the monkeys. So they started another company. So I'm um, sitting there in in this mountaintop in Pennsylvania, and my mother calls and says, hey, some some people from Los Angeles are calling you, and it was the record company people. And they called and started telling me they wanted the tapes, whatever tapes were left because they wanted to do another record. I tried to say, "Oh god, there's no record there." Finally, they started intimidating me. They said they'd get if I didn't give them the tapes, they'd give me they'd get a court order. And I'm said, "I what did I know? I'm a 21-year-old kid from, you know, sitting in Western Pennsylvania right. and uh, terrified that they're going to send somebody up to arrest me or something." <laughs> so I finally said, "Okay, well I'll I'll do it, but I have to do it. I have to come out and do it. So so they sent me a a plane ticket, put me up in a hotel for a couple of um, weeks. And uh, I got the engineer from the NAS and went back to the same studio. This guy was James Lowe now. He had been the uh, lead singer in the Electric Prunes, but he was our engineer. He was really good. He's still good. He lives down in Dominican now, I think. So we went in and did that third record, and I went back to the record company and said, you know, there's not a record here. This is just stuff that would, will be great in a couple of years as nostalgia, but it's not a record. They wanted it anyway, so I really didn't have any choice. I, I knew that Jim had made safe copies of everything, and even if I refused to give it to them, they would, they'd get it released anyway. <laughs> ¶¶ I decided I decided to move to LA I went back to Pennsylvania got a bunch of stuff shipped some drums out there and went back to LA and uh, was staying with the NASA's first manager who had moved out there and was running a chain of record stores and at one point he asked me he said well one of my record store managers is cheating me so I fired him so can you go sit there for a couple of days while I find somebody So I went to this record store And one day I got a phone call, uh, and it was Rick. Uh, He had somehow tracked me down through somebody and found out that I was staying with Jack Warfield in Los Angeles and called Jack, and Jack gave him the phone number of the store, and he called me. And he wanted me to come to Rockford and check out his band, and I, I didn't want to do it. So we spent the next couple of months, I guess, exchanging letters, I might still have some of those letters. I'm not sure. Sometimes, some of them would be two pages with nothing but song titles on them of songs that we loved. I, I It's hard. Sometimes I, I get, I don't know how long these things took, but I think it was like maybe um, two months or something. And finally, after a lot of mail exchanges, I said, okay, I'll come check it out. So I went to Rockford. And it was Rick and Tom, and I got a guitar player named Craig Myers and a singer named Joe Sunberg. Mm-hmm. And I said, and that was Fuse. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, this is cool. So I said, I'll come back, and I went back to Los Angeles and once again shipped drums. <laughs> back in those days, you could ship drums, excess baggage, or you could ship them. I mean, I used to take a full set of road cases on on a plane with me for twenty-five dollars a piece which is a huge amount of stuff but not anymore so yeah so uh, uh, I moved I went back to Rockford and Rick and I were sharing an apartment and Rick really he wanted two things then Um, he wanted to get rid of his guy his Rockford guys except for Tom and Tom wanted the same thing and he wanted to be a guitar player. He was the keyboard player in Fuse. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know that. Yeah, mellotron. That? Yeah, mostly mellotron, right? No, he he bought and sold mellotrons, but in Fuse he, it, there was a lot of organ.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and I'm not sure that we actually used a mellotron on stage. I have some great pictures of us on stage. Oh, Tom's got a to big old boa constrictor them. around his neck. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's it's Rick before image, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's and he's he was just a out I, I should publish those sometimes some cool pictures. But so once I got there and we started rehearsing and doing gigs, and they had a great the Midwest. Well, you know you're there right, BJ? Yeah. The Midwest in those days, like in Philadelphia, we barely had our own equipment. You know, a guitar and a some drumsticks, but in the Midwest, these bands like Fuse, they had a truck with a, with um, and a crew and enough PA to do a small arena, and that's what we went off and did gigs with. It was you know, I mean, it was very, very big compared to um, music in Los Angeles or. Or New York or Philly, or any of those big cities, it was a completely different music world, and we bounced around. We went all over Wisconsin and Illinois and Iowa and Michigan and Indiana, doing gigs but w- when we were there, um once I got there, Rick and Tom really started singing, so we want to get rid of our singer, Where's stooky and I just I cringed because I didn't want to relive what had happened uh. When the Nas was dying, but uh, they they just kept persisting. So finally, I, I revealed where where Stukey was, and I called him. He said that uh, Rick tracked him down and called him. It was actually me under a lot of pressure, and I called him and said, "You want to come up and check this out?" He said, "Okay." So we we got him a ticket, and he came up and then uh, asked asked him to join the band, and they got rid of their singer, Joe Sunberg. And Rick was still the keyboard player, and there was still the guitar player, Craig Myers. And we were doing gigs. It got really, it was really, it really got decayed. At one point, Ken Adamani, who was even the manager then, took any anything off the rider that involved liquor <laughs> and made it clear <laughs> that under no circumstances were the clubs supposed to give us free liquor. They couldn't stop us from buying it. But They weren't allowed to give it. That was mostly because of me and Tom. Tom and I. I don't know which (laughs) way.
4: Well, uh, so so that's interesting that basically you just came for a while and just replaced Chip Greenman and Fuse, and it was the entire rest of the band.
2: And how long did that last before you got Stooky? It wasn't long. Uh, You know, time compresses, so I'm not really sure how long it was. It wasn't... It wasn't that long. I went there first to check them out in the early winter of, um, I guess, 19... Wait a minute, let me get this. Was it 70? Yeah, 1970. And uh, Stukey was up there within maybe
4: two months. Well, do you know the story that... I think it's in the Cheap Trick book, and I think Rick, Told it at some point that he was in London at a Yes concert and he ran into Todd Rundgren and he asked Todd Rundgren. Well, Todd Rundgren told him that Naz broke up and he said, "Oh, where? What's Stukey doing?" And Todd told him where Stukey was or something, and that's how. And then he called Stukey's parents. That's the whole story, that I think is well, in the
2: book. The, the honest truth is Todd would have no would have had no idea where Stukey was. Right. Um, I mean, which is probably fits the story because Rick had no idea where he was. He really pressured me into calling him, and I didn't want really to do that.
4: So, is there uh, is there any truth to the the Rick running into Todd Rungan at a Yes concert in
2: London story? Well, that's quite quite possible because I know yeah. that Rick, you know, Rick's family. I mean, Rick is a yeah. Rick's family. I think he got it from his dad and stuff. Like, if if there's profit to be made, Rick. He's focused on the bullseye, and, and he, was, he was. His dad owned, you know, that music store, mm-hmm. which was huge business in that part of the country, and Rick had access to all of his um, um, licenses and purchasing licenses and resale licenses and stuff, so Rick would, was, was actually, he was importing Mellotrons and selling them and using them, So uh, it's it's quite possible. I've never read any of the cheap cheap trick stuff, Um, but that's quite possible. But I I just don't get the Stukey connection because I, I mean I this is as clear in my head as uh, pouring coffee this morning that when I got to Rockford, they did they had no idea where to find Stukey, and and really. Uh, I guess they had a bigger plan than I was quite aware of at first. I thought they just wanted to replace their drummer. And then when I got there, slowly I began to realize Rick wanted to be the guitar, guitar player and he wanted to get Stukey up there too. So I knew where Stukey was in Texas, which is where he was sort of hanging out. And I called him. And uh so I, I don't know. I I heard Stukey tell that story, and, and I just heard you tell it, and I... I should look it up. I'll ask Rick the next time I see him, but who knows?
1: Well, like, memory is kind of like uh, uh, um, um, one of those old cardboard milk cartons, right? If you Ye yeah. and BJ are sitting there having breakfast, I see one side of the milk carton, you see one side of the milk carton, and BJ's seeing right. the missing kid thing, you know, where it says missing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so it's it's, it's... it's probably
4: It's probably a combination of stories. Probably, Rick probably got the idea of tracking you guys down by hearing that Naz broke up maybe from Todd Rundgren yeah. and then, and then it goes from there. But yeah. he, maybe the initial idea of, Oh, I'm going to get Stooky and Tom in my band. That might've just happened from, you know, when he ran into Todd Rundgren.
2: Yeah. And Cause the it's, rest, I you know. mean, the only thing Todd could have told him and I, I could look up when yes played in London and it would have to be 69. The only thing mm-hmm. that, Todd could have told him was that Todd had quit the band. I don't think he knew that we'd broken up. We were hiding out in Texas. I don't think anybody knew we'd broken up. Um, yeah, you were
4: still you were still basically keeping Naz together as a band just without with somebody replacing Todd
2: for a while, huh? And and Carson. I got a guy yeah. named Greg Simpler from college to um take Carson's place. He Carson quit first. He he didn't he hated the music business. He he wanted to be an artist. Um and he had a degree from Philadelphia College of Art, and he, when everything and he was Todd's roommate, so he was privy to all of Todd's like maneuvering and stuff to um, find himself another spot in the music world. Is the literally is, this is absolutely true? As soon as we told Todd we wouldn't release a double album, and that was not me. That was the record company, the management, the agents, everybody that was involved. He just said so I'm I'm gone and uh, started working kind of under the covers to find himself a new place but he he didn't actually overtly quit he just became unavailable and uh, Carson actually sent us a letter <laughs> sent the manager a letter and said he was he wanted to quit but he'd be glad to uh, continue working while we replaced him And he gave a a pay scale, a list of what he wanted to be paid for what. And the manager sat down and said, what do you want to do about this? And I said, well, if we have to replace him anyway, let's just do it now. So we did that. And I'm really certain about how uh, I I ended up in Rockford. And I'm really certain about how Stukey ended up in Rockford. I... It seems strange that is getting his information from, from reading it, but he can't seem to remember it. <laughs> it's, not, it's not two different stories. There's really one story. Now, Rick may have been trying to find Stukey, but he hadn't. Yeah. You know, he, he didn't find him. He found me, <laughs> and, uh, and then I helped him find Stukey.
4: Makes sense.
2: Now, well, so
4: then there was a period of time where Craig Myers was still in the group with you and Stukey. Right, and then yeah. eventually he leaves, and then it was no, it, it
2: was a it no. was the whole time I was there. Craig oh, okay. In the band, okay. So I got there in the winter of '70, and whenever Stukey came, and then it, we we only we were together for maybe eight nine months. Mm-hmm. We did a lot. It we had a lot of we did an awful lot during that period, but it just sort of uh, decayed a lot uh it sort of imploded Rick got married I had a girlfriend who talked me into bringing her to Rockford I had a dog we were so Stookie and I took one apartment in this building and Rick and Karen took another apartment the, the the apartment that I'd been sharing with Rick Rick and Karen took over and I moved downstairs and Stookie and I shared an apartment with my dog the then girlfriend you know, uh, and and so tom and i were really close we just we were just drinking too much we were just it was just kind of chaotic karen and i didn't really get along and she was sort of doing the okay she had an influence over rick but it was more like a protective influence and she was sort of you know i don't want to say this in, in the wrong way but kind of yokoing the band And (laughs) um, (laughs) Karen and I get along now, but it was rough then. So, um, so it was maybe. I think Tom was the first one to leave, and he just said, "I this I got to go, or I'm going to go. I'm going to Germany," and he just took off. It was maybe August, something like August of um, '71.
4: And why did he go to Germany? Was was his brother stationed there? That's one thing that I've heard. I uh,
2: you know, I can't remember why. I think he had some kind of family or connections over there. Yeah, he just took an acoustic guitar and was sort of just trying to be a folk singer in Germany. Mm. And then I left. It was a there was a couple there were a couple of really bad days, and I had decided to leave. And and just at that point, I mean, one morning Stukey, I was talking to him, and he. He had big bruises and cuts all over his face. Apparently, he'd gone face down in the street the night before, just plastered. And I sat down with him for the second time in my life, and I said, "Stooky, get out of the music business. It's going to kill you." And that was the last conversation I ever had with him. He hasn't spoken to me since. Hmm. So this was around. So I I got into a, a Volkswagen Bug with the former lead singer of, of Fuse, Sunberg, Joe Sunberg, and my girlfriend and my dog, and we drove to L.A. Wow. And, uh, yeah. And so that's how I ended that phase of stuff with those guys.
4: Well, so, you say it was like eight or nine months that you and Stukey were in the band? Is that what you... Is that what the eight or nine probably,
2: months yeah, Probably, yeah, probably two
4: more for me than for him. And... Were most of the gigs either as Fuse or Naz? was there a never, time where you were no, never Nas, never as Naz. never it was NAS. always Fuse. Yeah, because that's, Fuse. that's
1: that's that's a big thing that you read every so often. Yeah, they always
4: the, say it would switch off between Fuse and Naz.
1: And I kind of you know, thought that that might have been because of the regional success of a band. You know what I mean? Like, we it it might be who's someone to say that you're Naz here because they had you know a good run of things there.
2: I think they may have they they I think they may have tried to use that uh when they reformed with Stukey and did the Sick Man stuff they may have tried to incorporate Naz's name into into Booker. Okay.
4: Was it ever but Sick Man of Europe when you were there?
2: No. No, okay. No. Uh, that didn't happen until Tom came back from from Europe. I don't know. I think
4: Yeah, they moved back. to Philly. Yeah, Stukey yeah. and Rick moved to Philly. Yeah. So what about Uh, supposedly there was like a second Fuse album in the works for Epic Records. Do you know anything about that, or was that ever... I didn't
2: even know there was a first one.
3: (laughs) (laughs) So...
4: Well, what you were you guys when you were a band with Stukey and you were you doing all the fuse original material, or were you doing covers? Yeah it point?
2: was there was a lot of you know um uh, I think they were unformed at that point as to the the their real end direction We were doing a lot of Midwest has a midwestern American music has a style and it's it's often very sort of um uh, orchestral and 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 the vocalists have that kind of um, I don't know operatic kind of style and that's what I walked into the the songs were were um, heavily arranged with a lot of different changes and parts um, a lot of energy and it was good and infectious but it wasn't formed into into the more kind of pop style that um that cheap trick uh, yeah. surfaced with. But you were um, doing
4: originals.
2: You were doing originals. We were doing some originals and a lot of just a lot of the standard oh, okay. uh, circuit circuit cover stuff. Yeah, you know the same stuff. That's why uh, I was drawn to them because they they were into the same kind of bluesy, simple, straightforward rock stuff. Um, you know, like Yardbirds stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, things like that and we did some of that and some of the original stuff the original stuff was a little more convoluted than the other stuff we were learning but but it was a it was a really good band it was um very you know very together
4: that's really interesting that Tom Peterson left before you right? yeah and then and then so then you leave and I guess Craig Myers quit too and so then Rick and Stukey just found themselves you know by themselves yeah. because everybody left so was yeah. it probably Stukey's idea to, to go to Philly, since that was kind of his home base, or
2: you know, I, I I think that maybe with some encouragement, I mean, Rick was very determined to to keep moving forward, and I, I actually don't have any idea of what they did after I left. Yeah, right. You know, with my past and my expertise at shallow relationships, I, I can leave. <laughs> I can leave a <laughs> building and you know not and forget all about it. You know, about. Well, and how, how do
4: you end up? How do you end up going to L.A. with Joe Sunberg?
2: Well, he wanted to go to L.A. and I think he had some family or some connections or some friends out there. I can't really remember why he was going. Um, I, I would have. I was going back to L.A. anyway because I had. Yeah, just, it was a kind there. of
4: carpool then, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah, so we we went together. It was, we had a good time. It was stinking hot. It was the end of summer in 1971. I, I remember we went we were in New Mexico somewhere at some stop getting gas and food and st- stuff like that. And I let the dog out of the car, and he disappeared. And we were ready to leave, and I couldn't find him. It was so hot. It was 100 and something. And I'm walking around. I went back behind this uh, gas station complex, and there were some irrig- irrigation ditches back there. And I'm looking and screaming for the dog, getting really angry at him. <laughs> and and I come to this irrigation ditch, and I see this little black nose and white face. Just That was the only thing sticking out of the water. He was so hot, he couldn't take it. So, yeah, so that's how, so it was with Joe. I don't know how we... Under, I mean, I, you know, I, I'd done gigs with him when I first went there, and everybody was pretty friendly. Even, I mean, we even knew Bunny. We, his his family was pretty well off, I guess. His father had a swimming pool with a little western town scene built around it when we used to go hang out there. If I have that correct, I, I hope that... Yeah, we've heard not, that from other people. <laughs> but yeah, I, was saying, I hope I'm not imagining stuff, but... Um, but I had a great time in Rockford. At one point, I mean, I have some pictures of Rick and Tom, and I think Craig and I, and maybe I'm not sure if Stukey was there or not. But we went and, and did a little uh, seminar day at a, at some of the local schools. I got I was into in really into softball and baseball. I, I I had everybody buying ballpark franks because if I had enough labels, I could get a free aluminum bat. <laughs> <laughs> so we sort of, there you go. We. We started a softball team, and I, I know Stukey and Tom and I were in it. I'm not sure who else might have been in it. All the guys in our crew, and, and guys that we hung out with, and we actually challenged the uh, Rockford Police Department to play their softball team. And uh, I remember we won, and it was in the, it was in the, uh, I don't know what section of the paper, but it was a big. Headline for the story: It said, "Hippies Beat Cops." <laughs> <laughs> what was the name of your of your softball team? I can't remember. Oh. <laughs> I, have, I have the picture from the newspaper somewhere, but it's Hippies so Hippies beat
4: cops. That was the headline. <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> wow, that's great. So, yeah, it, it just got it just got sort of decadent. I don't think it was really together. There was there were these it was a bunch of guys all going sort of different directions and everything was always moving so fast in those days with the it was kind of the golden age of the rock music in the US and we just sort of lost control uh we, I know Tom and I were in heavily drinking cheap wine um, I know Stoogie was always stoned Rick was always pretty straight and businesslike but uh, it just sort of sunk, and everybody was—I don't know if we—I don't know if we had one big group hangover or what—but uh, <laughs> there just started to be kind of um, frictions, uh, and Karen was very angry at everybody, and of course, you <laughs> know, Rick. Uh, so that sort of put a little wedge between Rick and everybody else. And I think Tom was sane enough to just say, "I'm, I'm out of here.
4: Eventually, Tom Peterson quits the band, and at some point he moves to LA, and you hook back up with him, right?
2: Yeah, I I, I was trying to remember because I knew I was doing this today. I was trying to remember how we actually, how it actually came about. However, it came about, we were, yeah, we we became reconnected in a in a more personal way. Um, He was with uh, Dagmar, his wife, who was what a package. Holy cow! I'm telling you, he won't even talk about her. And uh, we were talking about we wanted to. He wanted to record some stuff of his own. And did I want to do it with him? And I said sure. And, and so I actually connected him. I actually got I, there. You know, I was working at so much in those days, doing a lot of recording and stuff. So I got him booked at at a place called El Dorado Studio. El Dorado Studios. It's right. It's an ancient uh, Hollywood studio. Almost just across the street from Capitol Records, mm-hmm. it's up on it was up on like the sixth floor or something like that. But it was a great studio, and I got got an engineer, a guy named Dave Jordan, who went on to do really oh, yeah. good good things with the Stones and a lot of other people. Means um, addiction and stuff, right? Yeah, uh huh. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we Tom and I started recording Two Piece. And we did a we did a bunch of tracks. Um, a lot of them were unfinished, so we sort of finished them up musically. Um, <coughs> and this is before Dagmar entered the picture. And then at some point, Tom said, "I want Dagmar to sing these things." And I said, "Okay." <laughs> do you and know approximately?
4: Point, do you know approximately what year
2: we're talking about? You know, you could tell me because you know when he was out there, right? Not exactly. Well, he left
4: the band in 1980. Yeah.
2: But
4: was was it pretty soon after he
2: left? Yeah. Or, okay. Yeah. We did these tracks, and then then he got Dagmar involved, and then it turned into another just bad news kind of experience. He would send her. He would he would bring her to to meetings with potential record companies and with her presence and her. Um, Strange accent. She would stand up and tell these record execs that uh, we wanted three hundred thousand dollars each to go any further with the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> and I sit with Tom afterwards. I say, Tom, what you, how can you do this? It's crazy. No one's going to respond to that. It was a bad. I think it was a bad time for him. I, I you know, I know that she was. She was way into. Hollywood and way into drugs and way into uh, extravagant living.
3: Uh,
2: they had bought a house. I think it was in Benedict, maybe or Beverly Glen Canyons, one of those canyons. Beautiful house. They lost the house. Uh, he was always in debt. I went with him once when he took his. He had he had a an old Thunderbird and an old some fancy some other fancy Chevy or something like that. We took the Chevy down to the mechanic and. And that's how he got out of paying for the repairs on the Thunderbird. He said, no, I want you to work on the on the Chevy, too. So we took the Thunderbird and left the Chevy there. And <laughs> he eventually lost the Chevy because he didn't pay the bill. Mm-hmm. But the same thing happened at the studio. At one point, he wasn't doing anything to try to pay for the time after he brought Dagmar in. And so they, they tried to seize all the equipment that we had <laughs> at the studio. They were... The studio people were friends of mine, so I was able to get my gear out. But um, I, don't, I think he had to negotiate or keep keep working there or something. Let me see. We would go to this house in, in in one of the canyons. He and I clandestinely late at night bust into the house and start taking out some of the stuff that he had, had put in there. I remember one night in the in the T bird with carpets and and floor covering hanging out the back of the the uh, T-Bird convertible.
4: Oh, was the house <laughs> foreclosed? They've, it was yeah, foreclosed then? Yeah. Okay.
2: Uh-huh. yeah, and then they were living in this huge, luxurious apartment uh, just on Hollywood Boulevard, just off of the main part of Hollywood Boulevard. And uh, there was a lot of drug stuff going on. I know Dagnar was always calling me seeing if I could help her get Quaaludes and, and Valium and stuff like that. It, it was... Not, it was not pleasant to uh, see that. So so that sort of fell apart, mainly because I left. I was really busy anyway. I had taken on this job uh, with, um, I don't know if you know who she is, Rita Coolidge. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she and I were living together as a couple, and I was also working as her um, music director, band leader music director. So I was always off... And we played, I played probably 35 countries around the world with her. Wow. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So I was always leaving, uh, you know, to to do that kind of stuff. I remember one time, it, I think it was Tokyo or Osaka in the international part of the airport. I don't know, have you ever traveled internationally? Because when you get in, that, once you get into the international part, you can't leave. You're just there for the length of your of your stay, if you want to leave you have to go out through customs and want to come back you have to come back through customs and immigration. So you usually just if you even if you have a layover of eight of eight or ten hours, you usually just stay in the international part of the airport. And one night I ran into those guys there at the airport. But I have all this time stuff sort of confused. It's all took place in the same era, but maybe not in the same order that I remember it. So all that stuff that we did at El Dorado Studios, I have copies of it, just the crude, basic versions that Tom and I did. And uh, I never knew what had happened to it. And then I was, in, I was either watching TV or in the car, and I saw some ad for the Playboy channel. It was something about Playboy's Women of Rock or something like that. And I'm hearing this stuff in the background, and it's, good God, those are the tracks I did and uh but they were they were heavily overdubbed and layered with stuff Agmar was singing everything, and it was really just a little bit goofy. And I asked Tom recently, I said, so do you have copies of that stuff, the, the finished work you did on it? And his answer was just an abrupt, no, no more conversation, nothing. He doesn't even want to remember that, I guess, that, that period of his life. Did he have any any kind of a
4: deal with Epic at some point to do a solo album? Was that what I don't
2: I don't think so. No? I, I know that at the time I was doing that stuff with him, he didn't have any, any kind of really solid deal. He didn't have any real support for, for doing music. I don't know why that was. I, I would have thought that he, because, you know, when you have the kind of success that those guys were having, pretty much everybody gets a free opportunity and funding for a solo project. That's just the way it used to yeah,
4: be. usually that would be in the band's recording contract would be that the epic would have rights to, uh, yeah. to opt either opt in or opt out on a solo project Yeah,
2: exactly. I would have expected that he would have had some uh opportunity to develop something, especially when he left the band, but to he never if he did, he never revealed that to me, and from what I saw, he was just trying to. Uh, Dagmar was very much pushing him mm-hmm. um, to be a solo artist. Uh, once again, another sort of interference by a spouse. It happens in both directions, but in, in you know, what he should have been doing, and, and he probably shouldn't have been trying to do something with her, because she was too just too crazy, and not very talented.
4: Uh. <laughs> well, do you think, as the legend goes, Dagmar... Prodded him into leaving the band, or or prodded him into demanding more of to play more of a role in the band, which was yeah. you know rejected by the band. I mean, do you think that's
2: there's probably at that least an a, element of truth, right? Absolutely true. That was yeah. a big issue with her, and you know when you from his perspective, if you have that in your ear constantly, when you're not, you know, because those guys had come to the point where they could afford to be. Completely independent of each other except when they were working so Uh in his home life. He had that constantly in his ear Constantly like you're better than than this and you should be you should have more So on and so forth and it was a constant part of the conversation between Dagmar and I and Tom when we were You know sitting talking about stuff. Yeah, so no, that was that was probably the main reason that he was not in the band. But I mean, Dagmar could literally go to the Beverly Center and drop a month's pay in a day, and she hmm. quite often did it. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, he was caught up in a sort of a a whirlwind spiral that he couldn't couldn't get control of, which is probably why he doesn't want to talk about it now. Right, right.
4: Well, Do you think, I mean, it sounds to me like maybe, she, you know, she thought she married a guy that was a huge rock star in a huge rock band, and Chief Trick were successful, but they weren't probably as successful as maybe she thought <laughs> they were.
2: Yeah, and if she'd if she been sane and could have hung on, she would have gotten there, but it wasn't. And she really thought that she... I can't say what she thought. I don't... <clears throat> I, right. I, but... Um, it, it seemed that what she was pushing for was to convince, convince Tom that he was so much better than they'd ever given him the opportunity to express and that as a solo artist with her uh, participating in her support, he could realize, you know, that potential. And I think he, you know, love and and attraction are a powerful tool, so I think that sort of worked on him. and. Uh, it, and so he he went for it.
1: Not only that, we've seen it time and time again that when a band does hit big, it seems like people are always swirling around the individual members telling them that they can do better or that they can be the big thing. It doesn't matter what band it is. It just kind of seems to happen, you know?
2: Yeah, I know that, yeah, to be true. In, in my life in music, if a band has any actual shot at success, it's so hard to get from being completely unimportant to being important in a short period of time. And one of the things that the business in music does is sort of divides and conquers. The, the peop- people running the business know that the hardest thing to manage is a whole band. And it's much easier to manage uh, one individual. And if you can get that individual locked up, you, you know, then... You're, you as a businessman are sharing a much bigger part of the, of the um, pie than you would be if you were doing the same job for a band. It's really that kind of divide. I mean, that, that happens. I've seen it happen almost constantly. You, you read these stories about famous bands, Fleetwood Mac and stuff like that, where they have a meeting and all five members have their lawyer with them. Their own lawyers. He's not a group lawyer. (laughs) They all have their own lawyers, and they're negotiating with each other. Mm -hmm. It's really creepy.
1: Well, that's, uh, you know, it's show business, so... Yeah, it is. Sadly, it happens. Well, what I was
4: going to say is, most diehard Cheap Trick fans, this name Dagmar is in the history, kind of an infamous name, but I always hesitate to go with the... to just, you know, to... uh, Take Dagmar as the the root of the problem with Tom leaving, or the Yoko Ono. But now here we're talking with someone who was actually there and witnessed, you know, these mm. things occurring. You know, so right. that's a whole different story when we actually have an eyewitness <laughs> to the dynamic that was there, and kind uh, of you... confirming a lot of the things that we've all either heard about or you know, suspected yeah. <laughs> were true.
2: It was really it was a just a terrible time I think for Tom, although you know, I mean Tom has a an incredibly good sense of humor. He's a really real sweetheart, and I think he just got sort of um, in a control relationship with Dagmar, and I think she was controlling much more than anybody would want of of his energy and his participation and stuff like that. And I'm sure that she was a, a major Influence in him leaving the band, and uh, I think he had to be separate from her to get back in.
1: Well, right. Thank, thank God he did come out because I, uh, I like having Tom Peterson cheap truck.
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, for yeah, sure. Talk, talk about uh, uh, some kind of signature identity. You can't, nobody has ever um, done the unique kind of bass work that he's done. Well, Tom is, um, you know, really special um, addition to any, to anything musical. I mean, we were actually, when he and I were recording, we were playing two piece. We had no guitar for quite a while. I don't think he put any guitars on until after I left. But we were doing things like we'd make these tracks. Then one of us would get an idea. Oh, let's let's try to get a really really low piano note. Well, they don't go that low. Okay, so let's speed up the machine record the piano, and then slow it back down to normal, and we'll have a bass, we'll have a, a note an octave lower than anything we could have gotten before. So we were doing that kind of stuff, and it was really fun. But then when Dagmar entered the picture, it just got bizarre. It was sort of like, for someone like me, and I can only imagine on a much bigger, more important scale with the with the whole band, if some, if you're going to give someone that much influence over your music, you have to have... Respect for their ability, and their talent, and their intuitive insights and stuff like that. And Dagmar didn't have that. She was just aggressive
1: and hot and German. But, so.
2: <laughs> but so, so some of that,
4: those songs that you worked on with him as early as probably, like we're saying, 1980, 81. That stuff ended up on the Another Language EP. Then later. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Have you heard? Do you have that? Have you heard it? Yeah. 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 Uh, well, way down at the bottom of that stuff, from the little bit that I've actually been able to find and hear, you can hear the drums that I actually did <laughs> when, we tr- when we made the tracks. But it got buried and buried. In, buried. I, sometimes I start to sound like Pennsylvania. I noticed with Stuokie, who's not from Pennsylvania, that he now sounds exactly like a Philadelphian, like all those people I grew up with. <laughs> and I, I can pick that accent out across the Rose Bowl, you know, um, on game day. <laughs> but, um, yeah, do you have an actual copy of it? Did it actually yeah, I get have the released?
4: Record. Yeah, I have the record, yeah.
2: Yeah, oh. it got released
4: by Enigma. Yeah. But it's only, I, mean, I think it's only six songs. Your name is on yeah. there just as one of the credited musicians, like on a list of people, you know.
2: Yeah. Um, so all the basic, tra- all the... I think there. Are, I remember five, but there may have been six, or they may have done another one after I stopped participating. I didn't stop participating. There was no discomfort with me not participating. I just got really busy, and uh, I had to. You know, I sat with Tom and said, "I can't, I can't not work to do this because this is not. This I I still have to earn some income. So yeah, there was no there were you know there was no friction or anything. Uh, but I was kind of relieved, because I just thought Dagnar was just, um, I don't know, a, a music killer.
4: Yeah, I just pulled out the record, a Kid Went at 84, and yeah, you're right, it's five songs.
2: Yeah, okay. Yeah, those are all five of those, I think, are ones that we did there.
1: We would uh, love yeah, to hear I, the versions th- that you have, though.
2: Yeah. I, I have <laughs> I have actual studio demos you know, daily things that, that we do a mix down after we'd done it, and uh, yeah, so it's really raw. Some of it's, some of them are don't even have vocals. Some of them do.
4: Do you have any um, of it digitally, or is it all just on tapes? Or it's
2: all all just tape. But you know, I can always convert it if you want to hear it. Please,
4: would I mean, you, yes, yes, we would love oh, that. I mean, yes. do you I think mean, it would be all right if we played, you know, maybe like a thirty-second clip of different songs on on the podcast or something. Oh, I don't or? care, sure. Uh, listen, that would be amazing
2: I, you know, actually it would be, be better if we
1: get the whole
2: this stuff should mesh. be out there i mean I, I you know just as a i mean at this point for all of us th- those guys are all my age at this point it's it's historical information and there's nothing that's what Tom and I talked about um about ten days ago. It was like, do you mind if I tell sort of a more candid version of some of this stuff and he said, no no it's it's that's Way in the past, so yeah, it's historical, there's no reason people shouldn't hear it.
1: well, I just want to Let's take go. a second to wrap everyone's head around that that Tom Peterson is aware of you doing this interview with us yeah, listeners, <laughs> wrap your head around that
2: <laughs> um I would have talked to Rick too, but um he's he doesn't he has different phone numbers, and I have to go through his um you know, some. Third party to get through to him, mm-hmm. and so Tom, Tom and I just we text jokes to each other all the time.
4: And you know that that lends a lot more credence to what what you've said about the relationship with Dagmar. Not that you've really said anything that, um, you know, outrageous or negative, but just the fact that you went to Tom and got his okay, and you know, so it makes. It like I said, it lends a lot more credence to what you've said about the dynamic that existed between them that we've all pretty much suspected or kind of known about, but you never really know what to believe.
3: You right? Know.
4: Are you Canadian?
1: No, doesn't he sound doesn't he sound slightly Canadian? Every once in a while, those utes, those Wisconsin oots pop in.
4: Yeah, it's that Wisconsin <laughs> accent.
1: Yeah, I, I moved to Austin.
4: I moved to Austin, Texas, and people would ask me if I was from another country, and I had no idea how you know. BJ,
1: I've been working <laughs> with you. Austin, I didn't know. <laughs> BJ, I've been working yeah. with you for over four years, and I I wonder if you're from another planet. So you know. <laughs> yeah. So Tom, Tom, I, I, do do me a favor, would you, sure. please? A solid text, Tom, and let him know that this is a love story to the band. Uh, every okay. <laughs> once in a while, people like you know they get hung up on who's in the band, who's not in the band, yada 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 yada. Our thing is to document the entire history of this band, and we love Cheap Trick. So yeah. just, just just let them know that uh, I, they're sure. the
4: greatest band of all time. They're my favorite. So this yeah. is this well,
1: is this is a love letter well, to anyone that's part of that story, and you, sir, are part of the story.
2: Yes, I am. That famous rock and roll horror in our know, life when you were the first, you three
3: it? No, not really. It never appeared to me. You know, I, I come from Europe. I have a different kind of background. And I sort of, you know, I fell in love with Tom and not with the rock industry, you know. So I never missed that part. We were living very quiet when we were together. And we were not like partying every night and playing at the rainbow. And, It's to see you lying in next to me. Just be still, don't talk about. If I'm nice, still ground. Don't be shy, don't think about it. I do what you want.
1: I guess the last question we have is, when you think of Cheap Trick, what, what's the first thing that pops into your mind?
2: <laughs> oh, man. Um, well, one, I'm really happy for those guys. Two, I don't. I think I'd be dishonest if I said there wasn't some envy in me for those guys. I'm going to go see them. Tom was saying he wasn't sure when, but they'll be up here in the Northwest again in there. Sometime around the end of summer, so I'll see them again. Yeah, I'm just I'm really glad for them. Right? shit, they're in the Hall of Fame.
1: Hey, there you go. Yeah, you can't beat yeah. that. Well, I want to thank you for being on Cheap Talk today and having some laughs with us, and sharing your memories and magic and moments and music with us. We really do appreciate you, and like I said earlier, you are part of the story. So we want to thank you for yeah. being on Cheap Talk. Oh, you're welcome.
0: The music they play on the bandstand, bandstand. Oh. <laughs> Hello. Uh. Gentlemen, without them, you'd be in a lot of trouble. That's, Shall we take care of that right now?
5: That's for sure. Let's, yeah. uh,
0: I say, we'll start with the man furthest over uh, in the red shirt.
5: Trantham Whitley on keyboards.
0: Nice to see you, sir. The gentleman here.
5: Howard Epstein.
0: Howard. Gentleman behind drums.
5: Tom Mooney.
0: Thank you, Tom. And last but not least.
5: Mark Doyle.
0: Mark, nice to have you with us. Mm-hmm. What kind of jobs did you have before you became a singer?
5: Uh, mostly gas station work. Pumping gas and I swept floors. I was a short order cook. I licked envelopes. <laughs> uh, you name it, I did it didn't somewhere
0: along the way it occur to you that you were wrong in thinking you might become a singer
5: no not really uh i just had this kind of blind drive that uh i had something to to give to rock and roll and really it's rock and roll more than singing it's the writing and the performing and uh did all you, the i stuff. beg your
0: pardon to interrupt did you write everything on that album
5: yes and i co-wrote one the next song that we're going to do with mark doyle
0: but that brings up a subject. Uh, if I were able to write, I would be inclined to put all of my own stuff in the album. Do you do that? I'm sorry. Is this your second album? Yes. Uh, did you do it in the first one, too?
5: Yeah, I wrote, uh, I wrote all the songs, co-wrote, too.
0: Are you ever going to run us stuff?
5: i hope not uh... that's uh... you know it might happen i hope it doesn't if it does though uh... that's all right i'm not opposed to doing other people's material
0: i want to jump back for a second during that period of pumping gas and licking envelopes and all those <laughs> dumb things you did was there anybody along the way who said hey you're good you ought to do other things or anybody give you a little helping hand
5: well when i finally moved to california from the east coast uh... bob crew i met bob crew and he was my catalyst uh... he i had a knapsack and a guitar and he uh... met me
0: for the for the uninitiated this man is an artist a producer a writer a performer he's guided and helped an awful lot of other people he's a he also happened to be a friend of
5: mine
0: Um, i don't know where to go from there do you do you offer any hope for anybody who ever reaches the despair and says "Oh, i gotta give this up
5: sure you just gotta keep going you know i if you want to do it i figured my odds were that someday i was gonna make it if i didn't give up
0: what was the elton john story did you con him into a job (laughs) Sweet young thing like you, Buffalo, this man?
5: Uh, Not exactly. I did crash a party where he was at, and uh, I decided that I would stay after I saw that he was there. And uh, I met his manager and uh, him throughout the night. And uh, he just asked me, after he found out that I was a singer, he asked me if I would go on the road with him. And two days later I was rehearsing and the next week I was on the road.
0: Sounds like a bad B movie of the (laughs) old days. Would you sing another song?
5: I sure would. This is the
0: one you you two co-wrote? Again, the title please.
5: Too Close to Home.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, Cindy Bullens please.
3: our show trick chat is an online non-profit audio fanzine made by fans for fans any samples of music or interviews heard remain property of their owners we are not related to cheap trick or any of their members past or present if you hear anything you like from the band go on amazon or itunes to buy it if you enjoyed this show like us on facebook and rate us on itunes thank you for listening until next time i'm your announcer chelsea epstein saying keep cheap tricking
2: It's really, right. really, yeah. really a whole different approach. We used to talk. And, whoops. Oh shit.
1: <laughs> I think I think I think Tom's just uh, going through his kitchen. You know that junk drawer everyone has. I think he's just dumping them. I'm,
2: I'm pacing back and forth. But and I think we have our blooper, uh, our blooper
4: for the end of this. So <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh,
2: that crazy um, basket full of potatoes and onions just just fell off there. <laughs> it was happening. <laughs> <hell> <there. laughs> it from the floor.